sticks, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. The government hug the government love. Welcome to The Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Trey Orndorff, a political scientist at Oklahoma Christian University, and I'm joined for our midweek show by Ken Katkin, a professor of law at Chase School of Law in Northern Kentucky. Welcome to The Midweek Show, Ken. Thanks, Trey. It's great to be back again. Yeah, I mean, uh, I'm, my guess is at some point you're going to get tired of hearing me. I don't know. <laughs> uh, so on the weekend show on Saturday, Ken and I we had a we had a number of uh, court cases and constitutional law issues. And if you haven't heard that show, I I highly recommend that you go back and take a listen to that. Uh, it was a lot of fun. And if you enjoyed that, you're going to uh, love today's show uh, because we actually kind of want to pick up with uh, this past week's some of the really big court cases that are occurring, one that's finished and one that's in process. And I want to start, Ken, by talking about uh, Tim's versus Indiana. And so for listeners who may or may not be in on this, uh, this case is about uh, incorporation. Mm -hmm. Uh, And what that means is, is so once upon a time when the constitution was written, and then the Bill of Rights are added as a result to get the Constitution passed. It's, it's a concession to anti-federalists. Uh, and the, the purpose of the Bill of Rights was to restrict the national government's ability to interfere with citizens' rights, because that's what the worry was. So you're, actually, your Bill of Rights, it didn't apply to what happened at the state level. So that didn't apply to the state legislature of Kentucky or Oklahoma or Florida. Uh, But then after the Civil War, we have um, the 14th Amendment is passed. And what the 14th Amendment says, in part, there's more to it, of course, but in part, for our purposes here, it says that there are some fundamental rights that all American citizens have, and therefore uh, can't be abridged either by the national government or, and this is key, state governments. And so what slowly but surely began to happen uh, was the process of taking pieces, uh, almost kind of like with a, a, I like thinking of like tweezers, the Supreme Court would like take a teeny little itty bitty piece out of the Bill of Rights and say, via the 14th Amendment, we're now going to apply this uh, to the states. And what we mean by that is, is that states would then have to respect that right. Uh, that Bill of Rights rights. And that's the process of incorporation. So here enters in this past week, uh, the decision in Tims v. Indiana, um, when Tyson Timms, uh, he purchased a Land Rover for about $42,000 a few years ago in January and 2013. Uh, and what ends up happening is, is that he used this vehicle while he's transporting heroin. Uh, and so he is charged uh, the state Importantly here, Indiana charges him um, with a number of felony uh, uh, crimes. He ends up uh, doing a plea deal so that he ends up just pleading pleading guilty to one charge. Uh, He gets a a largely suspended sentence uh, and then he has to pay some fines and fees. Well, the state additionally wants to forfeit his Land Rover uh, and the the lower courts will all say, look, uh, you can't do this because that's an excessive fine because in Indiana, uh, the ma- the maximum uh, statutory fine for Tim's felony is a $10,000 charge and his vehicle, even with depreciation, is worth at least about three or four times that. The Indiana Supreme Court 
reversed those lower court decisions and said, um, no, actually, the Supreme Court has never incorporated the Eighth Amendment, this portion of the Eighth Amendment, and therefore uh, it, it has not come to us via the Fourteenth Amendment, and therefore the state can forfeiture whatever they want uh, because this uh, the Eighth Amendment does not apply. Uh, what's interesting about this, Ken, I've got some sure, deep questions sure. for you on this, is that it, it's, a, it's a majority opinion. Uh, we have a 9-0 opinion here that says, look, if we haven't made it explicit, it's explicit now, and they had it, and it is, uh, that the Eighth Amendment, the excessive fines portion, applies to states. As a matter of fact, uh, 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 Ginsburg will say that it is, in fact, a, quote, fundamental to our scheme of ordered liberty, end quote. And the reason that's important is that's actually – that is the uh, the standard by which whether something is going to be included or not included in that incorporation process. Uh, and so uh, they'll apply it. But now there's two interesting concurring opinions where uh, Gorsuch and Thomas, they both agree in, in whole, but both of them would argue that they shouldn't use uh, the, um, the 14th Amendment's privileges or immunities clause, they argue that it needs to use the due process clause. And they both note that the court has always gotten this wrong. And I actually had to read that twice because I've been teaching this for a while. And I thought, that's what they've always done. So Ken, this is what's happened. This is an interesting one. It's big news just because we've now incorporated a new right. And that's a huge deal. Uh, but also, I'm I'm interested in your take on these concurring. Yeah, opinions. I just want to correct. I think you had it backwards. The the court used the due process clause, and the Thomas and Gorsuch opinion said they should use the privilege or immunities clause. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yes. Yeah, thank you for but, that. Uh, Ken. Yeah. Well, that's it's it's that's a much more theoretical debate than practical debate. Although Thomas has some some reasons he thinks it's a practical debate as well. Um, there's no question that as an original matter, Thomas is right about this. Uh, the the author of the 14th Amendment uh, of that language was Congressman John Bingham of Youngstown, Ohio. And he, he, gave, he gave hundreds of speeches. He wrote hundreds of newspaper articles. Um, he was a vigorous campaigner for incorporation of the Bill of Rights and that, that that's what the 14th Amendment should do. Um, he'd been actually interested in that issue for almost 30 years. Uh, ever since the Supreme Court had decided a case called Barron versus Baltimore uh, in the 1830s that that held that the original Bill of Rights didn't apply to the states and uh, and and the initiation of the idea of dual citizenship, meaning you have you're both a citizen of a state and of the national yeah, government. Yeah, I mean Bingham always thought that the Bill of Rights that rights like freedom of speech and free exercise of religion um, that if people are going to be able to enjoy those rights, that that means that it, both the federal government and the state and local governments shouldn't infringe those rights. Um, but as you correctly pointed out, that was probably not the original understanding of the Bill of Rights in 1791. And um, the Barron Court uh, in, in the 1830s follows the original understanding of the Bill of Rights and says um, this, the, the Bill of Rights only restricts the United States government. It doesn't apply to state and local governments. So, so Bingham is one of the leading political figures in the 19th century who wants to change that. And he succeeds more or less in changing that because the 14th Amendment gets ratified. He gets to write this language. He goes out and argues in favor of ratification. And he makes it super clear that the language in the 14th Amendment that he thinks is the language that he wrote that will incorporate the Bill of Rights and make, 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 make the Bill of Rights apply against state and local governments is the Privileges and Immunities Clause, which is what Thomas is saying now. Um, and Bingham would even explain that Privileges and Immunities, that phrase, is a synonym for rights and freedoms. Privileges means essentially the same thing as rights. Immunities means essentially the same thing as freedoms. And the, the rights and freedoms that are protected in the Bill of Rights are the rights and freedoms 
that he wants to protect. Now, the reason he doesn't literally use the phrase Bill of Rights instead of using the more oblique phrase Privileges and Immunities is because in addition to the Bill of Rights, uh, the original Constitution had a separate uh, provision in Article 4, Section 2 that was called the Privileges and Immunities Clause of Article 4, Section 2. And it largely protects citizens of one state against um, discrimination when they travel into other states, being discriminated against because they're from out of states. And he liked that language because he thought it both sounded like the Bill of Rights, so he liked that, but also that he thought that the 14th Amendment should now be interpreted not only to prevent citizens, um, to prevent states from discriminating against out-of-citizens, out-of-state citizens, but also to prevent states from discriminating as between their own citizens. And that, of course, was... Um, thinking about the newly freed slaves, that he wanted them to have full first-class citizenship in their own states. So he thought that language kind of did both, but actually the language was, it was a little bit, um, it made it easier to, um, it made it less less uh, uh, explicit that he's talking about the Bill of Rights, and that caused problems because one of the first cases ever decided under the 14th Amendment uh, was a case called the Slaughterhouse Cases. It gets decided in uh, 1873, so that's just five years after uh, the 14th Amendment was ratified. It doesn't actually involve anything in the Bill of Rights. It only involves um, some other kinds of claims. Uh, but the court um, in the slaughterhouse cases gives such a restrictive reading of the Privileges and Immunities Clause that they basically nullified the clause. And so even though that had been the clause that the, the, the um, principal author of the language thought would incorporate the Bill of Rights, uh, uh, the court held that that clause really didn't do anything. And so that set back um, the, the incorporation of the Bill of Rights by about 50 years, and then 50 years. Right, because it really doesn't end up happening until 1937 in Polka v. Connecticut, It starts correct? happening a little sooner. Um, Gitlow versus New York is from 1925, and that uh, incorporates the, the free okay. speech clause. Um, Near versus Minnesota also incorporates the free press clause. So there's a couple of scattershot incorporation cases before the Palco case. Um, uh, although Palco comes up with the formulation that you talked about, uh, implicit in a system of ordered liberty, Th those rights that are implicit in a system of ordered liberty must be the, the rights that are protected by the word liberty in the due process clause, which says that no state can deprive any person of life, liberty or property without due process of law. So that's how the, the court comes. And that remains the holding, though, currently. Yeah, yeah that's the test. So that's the same test they were applying uh, yeah, that's what yeah. I thought. So okay. that 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 formula, that verbal formulation, you you're correct to say that comes from the 1937 case of Palco versus Connecticut. But that case, there had been some cases that had incorporated some First Amendment rights, and also a, a case that had incorporated the Fifth Amendment takings clause, um, even before uh, uh, Palco versus Connecticut. So Pal Palco came up with the formulation, but it wasn't the first actual incorporation case. Um, yeah. So so anyhow. So so that a lot of that is is in the nature of legal theory. Um, the the because the court didn't use the privileges and immunities clause though to give us uh, a full fledged incorporation of the Bill of Rights, and instead they stumbled on this other formulation where they said, well, okay, we don't have full fledged incorporation of the Bill of Rights, but we'll we'll only incorporate those particular rights that are in the Bill of Rights that are implicit in a system of ordered liberty. That meant that there's a a, a half century of cases largely from the from the 20s to the late 60s, where um, the court, one by one, is going through all the rights in the Bill of Rights and deciding whether to incorporate them or not. Which yeah. ones? And they end up incorporating substantially yeah. all of them. There's a few that they still haven't. Um, so as recently as 2010, they had not incorporated the Second Amendment right to bear arms, but they 
they didn't they did incorporate right. that one in 2010 in the case of uh, McDonald versus the city of Chicago. Um, and now uh, in 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 the case that was decided this week, they finally incorporated the excessive fines. The, I think the ones that still remain unincorporated even today are uh, the Fifth Amendment right to grand jury indictment. So um, states are allowed to use different methods other than grand jury indictment to start uh, to charge people with crimes and start a criminal prosecution. Um, and the S- Seventh mm-hmm. Amendment right to civil jury trial. So in civil suits like the defamation suits we were talking about with Nick Sandman in the Washington Post, um, if those... Yeah. As a reminder, that was bonus the bonus show, show listeners. So if, if you if you want to hear more about Nick Salmon and the suit against uh, uh, the Washington Post, uh, you'll actually have to uh, become a you have to become a supporter, and you'll have access to our supporter only shows. But that's what we have been talking about this uh, past weekend on the supporter show. But continue. Yeah. So Ken, that continue. case was brought in federal district court. So that means that because of the Seventh Amendment, um, if it goes to trial, then the the litigants will have the right to demand a jury trial. Um, it can't. The court can't just impose a bench trial on them. But uh, but in states, um, states are not bound by that rule. So states are allowed to require bench trials and civil actions. Um, there doesn't have to be jury trials as long as it's not a criminal prosecution. Um, so that one still hasn't. And then the other one that still hasn't been incorporated is just simply because it hasn't come up is uh, the Third Amendment right against uh, having to quarter soldiers in your home. Um, there hasn't really been a proper case. <laughs> <laughs> not one that has been, uh, not recently, you know, nobody's knocked or not knocked, I suppose, on the door. Yeah. <laughs> but <laughs> Now, now, pragmatic, I mean, all of that, of course, interesting and I think interesting to me and a lot of people, but this is also kind of profound pragmatically and politically because forfeiture has been a very, very powerful tool at the state level for... Uh, get, getting budgets for police departments and for for a number of things. Uh, so, what what are your pragmatic takeaways on the fact that we're now going to have uh, the excessive fines incorporated? I mean, it seems to me, uh, as one who takes a look at state and local government pretty quickly, this is going to have a relatively profound impact on day-to-day operating procedures in some states. Yeah, I mean, maybe it'll speed up the drive for marijuana legalization because the states won't be able to make as much money uh, impounding cars driven by marijuana (laughs) dealers anymore. (laughs) Well, and it could free up our social media fiends from their uh, busts that they always post. Uh, Wait, wait. Uh, (laughs) Yeah, so, so, yeah. Well, no, I mean... Yeah, yeah. I don't know. No, no, I didn't mean... Actually, I meant to let you continue. I'm sorry. Well, no, it's, it, what's interesting is, is and I agree with you, I, I actually wanted to head marijuana, but I don't know if you were going to go that way or not. So <laughs> let's just, let's just head that direction. I mean, this has been the way, I mean, because you transport, you, you transport marijuana and something and you can forfeiture. I mean, as a matter of fact, it goes so much so that, I mean, just, just the money that people have on them will sometimes be taken because, well, you know, that's probably what you were going to, you were going to buy it with. Um, and I mean, I know that sounds like a joke, but uh, I mean, it really could be the case that not having that means there's a whole lot less reason for state governments to want to prosecute drug laws yeah. uh, because they're going to be a whole lot less lucrative to them, their, their bottom lines as, as, as police forces. Yeah, I mean, in the Tim's case itself, which you already described the facts of, I think Tim's was selling $225 worth of heroin and the crime subject him to a $1,200 fine. But they took his forty-two thousand dollars Land Rover because he was driving it while he was selling their own. So, right. yeah, that that. So, it, I think it'll have some fiscal impacts on uh, the 
those kind of municipalities that um, do do uh, use it a lot for sure. And, and in all seriousness, do you think this will have an impact on uh, especially inner city drug crime prosecution? Yeah, I, I don't know. You know, I, 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 I guess it depends how mercenary of a view you take about why they do so much of that kind of prosecution, right? I mean, if you... <laughs> well, I, I, I'm going to put myself out there. I'm relatively mercenary. I, I, it seems relatively mercenary to my yeah. point of view. Uh, you, but again, I recognize that's a, a particular you point they, of view. <laughs> you think they do it because they want to forfeit all these assets and that's why they do all these arrests and prosecutions. I knew, I mean, I think it explains the reason why it appears that statistically speaking, those kinds of things are prosecuted at a higher rate uh, than, than are other kinds of crimes. Uh, and especially in the disparate areas that you see, right? I mean, you don't see that kind of behavior happening in uh, middle-class neighborhoods. You do see that in, in uh, where I think you're going to get your hands on some better stuff. Uh, so I'm not suggest. I would suggest that race plays a, a role yeah. as well. Um, but I would say race combined with uh, money in this case. Uh, so I, I just didn't know if you had any thoughts on that or not yourself. Yeah, I, I guess I probably subscribe more to the view that a lot of the war on drugs was more racially motivated than motivated by civil asset forfeiture. So um, so in that sense, I probably see less of a change coming than, than what you're predicting, but I, I don't, um, yeah, but I don't, I don't know, you know, I really don't know. I mean, this is my crystal ball is not very well shined on this one and I don't, I don't know what's going to come. <laughs> <laughs> well, and you, and it's difficult when you have this because this is a, this is a significant change, uh, and that it'll be interesting to see what continues to come out of that. And, and in all honesty, I, I don't think this got enough attention this week. I think it's a pretty big deal uh, and I, one of the reasons i wanted to, to to kick off the wednesday show with it now another issue that has come up this past week uh, and now this one is not i mean this is not in the past yet so it, it's it's a uh, lawsuit that's ongoing is that there was a, a lawsuit filed against president trump and secretary of state uh, 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 the secretary of state and it comes among legal questions about foreign terrorist fighters uh, whether they have been captured or whether they become embedded, in other words, they want to go to ISIS. Uh, and both in the United Kingdom and here in the United States, uh, we call this kind of the ISIS bride <laughs> uh, phenomenon. So uh, potential citizens, citizens who are going over to kind of join ISIS. Uh, and <clears throat> what's happened uh, recently, which brought this back to the center of attention, is that a 24-year-old uh, uh, Honda Mathana, uh, who was uh, born in New Jersey, uh, is wanting to return to the United States after having headed to uh, the area controlled by ISIS to be part of the Islamic State. Now, what the interesting wrinkle in this is, is that you might say, well, look, this is a pretty open and, and shut case because she's born in New Jersey and therefore you have birthright citizenship. However, she was actually born um, to a Yemeni diplomatic uh, diplomat father and what that potentially means is if she was, that she would not be eligible for birthright citizenship. As a matter of fact, Donald Trump has even been uh, tweeting about this, arguing that, quote, yeah, he's not going to allow her back into the country, exclamation point. At least he didn't make it all capitals, though. So I points to you, uh, uh, President Trump, this week for the use of punctuation. Um, 
uh, and arguing that she is not, in fact, a U.S. citizen and is not going to be admitted back in the United States. Uh, so the case that has opened up is uh, her father is suing on her behalf. Uh, and the, the, the crux of the argument here is that, uh, that he was no longer a uh, diplomat at the moment of her birth, and therefore she is an American citizen. But what's both interesting in this is you have the idea of whether or not she's a citizen, which is a fast kind of a interesting technical and legal question. Uh, but also, what ought we to do? And this has been a big one in the United Kingdom, probably even more specifically here in the US, with individuals who say, oops, I made a mistake. Uh, how do we treat this kind of uh, scenario? And as the war on ISIS uh, continues to kind of wrap up, potentially, uh, this will probably continue to be an issue. What do we do with these individuals? Do they have uh, a right to return, as Jeremy Corbyn of the United Kingdom argued, or, or not? And, and what do we do with that? So, Ken, thoughts on the ISIS bride cases emerging Yeah, this week? so uh, from, from a constitutional standpoint, uh, it is, it is going to matter whether she was uh, born while her father was in diplomatic service or not, because um, a, a diplomat who could claim diplomatic immunity um, is not subject to the jurisdiction of the United States within the meaning of the 14th Amendment. And so the, all, all, natural born, all persons who are born in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof become citizens. Yeah, yeah, and that's the key yeah. subject to the right. jurisdiction there. Citizens yeah. <laughs> at birth, so I think there's a you know I think there's a certainly a valid argument that if her father was in diplomatic service at the time on the day of her birth he could have claimed diplomatic immunity um, if he'd been charged with something then I don't think she has U.S. citizenship or doesn't ha or or it could be certainly taken away. Um, on the other hand, uh, if she um, and I know there's some factual controversy about when she was born and when her father left diplomatic service, but but yeah, yeah, that's that is the crux yeah. of the case. So yes. if she was born in the United States at a time when you know, even if her father was no longer lawfully present, um, that wouldn't really matter as long as she was born here and he was not uh, in a position to claim diplomatic immunity at the time, then she would be a citizen um, under the under the Fourteenth Amendment. And um, and there, there's a case I don't know if you've run across this one, but there was an old case from 1958 called Trope versus Dulles, which uh, addressed Oh, I'm not yeah. familiar. So this with that, addressed Ken. the question of whether you could revoke someone's citizenship as punishment for a crime. Um, and Trope v. Dulles squarely holds that um, that would be a violation of the Eighth Amendment uh, cruel and unusual punishment clause. So someone cannot lose their citizenship as punishment for a crime, you know, if they have citizenship. So I know some of the public discourse has talked about, well, even if she is a citizen, she should lose her citizenship for this. But that yeah, that that wouldn't be possible under under Trope v. Dulles. Um, uh, so I, I I think to me the whole case is going to come down to the resolution of one of the most contested facts in it, which is um, what was the status of her father at the time she was born in the United States. Now, in general, though, now and this I think raises the larger political question that I, I don't think is going to go away, although it's certainly not going to be hundreds of people, but. What is the right kind of response uh, when you have individuals who either, uh, if she does in fact have American citizenship, in a sense, defect isn't the correct word here, uh, but who take up arms against the United States, uh, what do you do with that, I think, is in fact 
a worthwhile policy question. And so, and so what do you think about uh, that question even a little more broadly than just in this particular case over does she or does she not have yeah, Well, this came up in the early years of the war on terrorism. So in the immediate aftermath of September 11th, uh, there were a few U.S. citizens who were fighting on the behalf of um, the Taliban and al-Qaeda and who were, were picked up. And um, one of them was a famous case, although it didn't get to the Supreme Court, but you probably remember it. There was this guy, John Walker Lind, who was considered the American Taliban. Yeah. Oh, and right. uh, Yeah. So yeah. he was brought back and, and uh, um, he was picked up by the army in Afghanistan. He was brought back. He was charged in, with crimes in an, ordinary civil, in an ordinary criminal trial in civil court, not a military tribunal or anything like that. He got sentenced to... Because he was a, he, he was yeah. a, uh, he yeah, had citizenship. Yeah, he lived his whole yeah. life in the United States until um, the year or two before he, he, he went over there a year or two before uh, the September 11th. And, um, but yeah, so he went. It was like 1999 yeah. Yeah. or something. And he, it? and he got picked up. Uh, uh, yeah. So as I say, he got sentenced to 20 years in prison. He actually, I think, um, is, it did just come out. He got sentenced to 20, but I think he served about 17 and got, got out a little early. So I think he's out of prison now. Um, and uh, oh. the uh, um, the other one, which did go all the way to the Supreme Court, and which might be even a little more on point here, um, there was this guy named Yusuf Hamdi, and he had I'm sorry, Yazer Hamdi. I was almost confusing with Yusuf Hamdan, but this was Yazer Hamdi. Yeah, Yazer Hamdi oh, yeah. was a guy who um, had been born in Louisiana, and uh, um, but but hardly lived here. He was back. He was back in the Arab world by the time he was about one year old. So he he grew up entirely. Um, uh, you know, outside the United States, didn't even speak English, um, but he had U.S. citizenship from birth, and he he became a Taliban fighter, and he got picked up and sent to Guantanamo. And uh, while he was in detention at Guantanamo, he took his case to the Supreme Court and argued that he shouldn't be able to be at Guantanamo because he's a U.S. citizen. Um, everybody else in Guantanamo were, were foreign citizens, hmm. and uh, the the court divided into three groups on this. There was no single majority opinion. Um, and the, 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 a rare occurrence, yeah, actually, the, uh, the plurality opinion by justice O'Connor, um, found it relatively irrelevant that he was a U.S. citizen and, and said that, uh, if he took up arms against the United States in a foreign country, he could be treated as an enemy combatant and subject to all of the, um, ordinary incidents of force that a captured enemy combatant would be subject to so that. If he, um, if if other prisoners of war that were picked up were being held in Guantanamo, then he could be held in Guantanamo, and it just didn't really matter that he was a U.S. citizen. That, that's what the O'Connor opinion said that got the most votes. Now I'm going to say I actually agreed with. Uh, there was an unusual uh, uh, pairing. There was one opinion written by Justice St Stevens and Justice Scalia together. Um, so that at that time would have been the oh, yeah. you know. Probably, I'd say Scalia would have been probably the second most conservative justice on the court next to Thomas, and Stevens was probably the most liberal or maybe the second most liberal next to Ginsburg. But um, they wrote together, just the two of them, nobody else joined their opinion, but they, they disagreed with the O'Connor opinion in a way that I found persuasive. And uh, they, they said that if he is a U.S. citizen, then that actually makes his actions treason, uh, which they wouldn't be if he wasn't a U.S. citizen. Um, and if his, yeah, and if his right. actions were treason, then under the Constitution, that means that he must be tried in an ordinary criminal court, not only, not only with a fair uh, civilian criminal trial, but actually with heightened uh, evidentiary standards. Um, but it also means that there's the potential of a death sentence, um, which would not be something you could apply to prisoners of war, right? So the, 
the people who were being detained in Guantanamo could not be summarily executed. Uh, but, 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 but somebody right. for but treason, yeah. for treason. So if you convict someone for treason on that heightened evidentiary standard, um, that's a crime, and that's a crime that only citizens can commit. Um, so, so the O'Connor opinion really, yeah. Well, and, and I'm glad you bring that up. And I, I don't mean to sidetrack you there, Ken, but uh, one of my questions about these cases is, uh, and this is not one that I have an answer to, is that I think most of us who look at this even from a, a semi-scholarly point of view say, well, what is then the standard of treason? So if, if heading over and taking up arms with ISIS doesn't count as treason, what would? So what, what is that? Is there a constitutional standard for treason? Yeah, yeah that honest, would count as know. treason. The, the constitutional standard relates more to evidentiary standards than to the definition. So there, there, have, to be, there, there have to be witnesses to overt acts who can testify about them. Um, and that, that's required by the Constitution for in, in a treason trial. Now, if you didn't have that level of evidence to prove out treason at, at that standard, then there's still a lot of other uh, lesser crimes that could easily be proved out. And that's what happened in the John Walker Lind case, right? He didn't actually get convicted of treason, but he got convicted of, 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 of various crimes of, of, of violence. Um, and that's, what, that's how he got the 20-year sentence. Um, so, so I think like the Lind case is, is one model for how this could go. But the, the Hamdi case, it has these interesting um, sort of d disjunction where uh, the O'Connor opinion had more votes and ultimately said that even, even though Hamdi was a citizen, he could just be left at Guantanamo as a prisoner of war. Um, and so that's, that's, the, that's, that's one approach. Um, but I kind of, I'd, I'd say personally, that's not the approach that I think is the best approach. I, I think the, the best approach would be to say, try, you know, bring, bring a citizen back, try him for treason. Try them for lesser crimes if you can't prove out treason. Give them an ordinary, uh, you know, fair federal federal trial in a federal court, perhaps before a jury if they want a jury trial. And some of these people might not want a jury trial; they might actually ask for a bench trial. Um, and uh, um, and then yeah, yeah I, I would imagine that you probably wouldn't want yeah. one given the <laughs> yeah. um, given the passions in the in the citizenry about these issues. So it's uh, um, yeah. So I, I think that's a better way to go. Um, uh, yeah, so that that would be my preferred, but that isn't that's not the Supreme Court was certainly open to other methods other than that. Well, Ken, it was wonderful talking about this with you, and I will say that I hope listeners that you enjoyed our our week of constitutional law and legal questions because I think that's really what we had yeah. this week, didn't we, Ken? Between the uh, the weekend and the and today's show, the Wednesday show, uh, but you know it's always kind of fun to kind of get a little bit deeper, and I hope you all enjoyed that as well little bit deeper into kind of the legal side of things uh, and to kind of talk about a few policy issues and a little bit more in depth. Uh, so I hope you've enjoyed that as much as I've enjoyed. So Ken, it's been wonderful chatting with you again here on Wednesday. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, and listeners, if you have liked what you've heard, I'd ask that you would subscribe to us on iTunes, rate us on iTunes, recommend us to a friend. It's amazing how much just one recommendation or one post on social media can do for us. Uh, and if you want to go to the next level, don't forget, Ken and I actually this past week had some very fascinating bonus show topics uh, relating to the case uh, against the Washington Post. So if you want to hear that, become a supporter. Supporters get a bonus show on the weekend. The executive producers of the Politics Guys are Michael Baranowski, Jay Carson, Bruce Johnson, Wilmer Marino, uh, Benji Fishman. Today's show was produced by Trey Orndorff. We'll be back with a new show on Saturday. I hope you'll join us then.